2 Kings 23. It says in verse 1, And the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and with all their soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book and all the people stood to the covenant. And we see firstly this morning is the purge of idolatry. But I should probably give you the title of the lesson first, which is Josiah's life of determination. And we're going to see things this morning that separate the life of Josiah from anybody else in the Bible. So we've seen, as I said, firstly, is the purge of idolatry. In verse 4, it says, And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests... And the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the groves, and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the field of Kidron, and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. <clears throat> so we see the purging of the temple firstly in verse 4. Before idolatry could be purged on a larger scale, it had to be removed from the house of the Lord first. The temple was built long ago as a house for God. You remember when David was first talking about the idea of building a, a permanent structure rather than just having a, a tabernacle, which is basically a tent in the wilderness that they carried with them into the promised land. David wanted to build God a permanent structure among his people. Uh, but there was so much war in David's time, he never had the opportunity so Solomon came along. He had a, a time of great prosperity, as we all know. And he had the opportunity to build God a house. And they called that house the temple. So it was originally built so that God would have a house in Israel. And he built God's house first, and then Solomon built his own house second. That was the original purpose for the temple, was so God would have his own house among his people. So the temple was built for that purpose long ago, but Israel started worshiping other gods in the very house of the Lord himself. This is extreme wickedness. And I feel like it, just reading it like this doesn't really help you understand how horrible this was. It would be uh, as though a wife began cheating on her husband which the Bible often relates to Israel's idolatry, is like a woman cheating on her husband. But then moving her lovers into the house with her husband while she continues to commit adultery. 
That is basically what Israel's doing here. They have taken their idols that they're not supposed to have, that they're not supposed to worship, moved them into God's house, and are worshiping these false idols in the house of the Lord. It would be also like if someone were to bring in statues for Buddha and the Hindu gods into the church house and began worship, worshiping them in the church. So before they can purge idolatry on a larger scale, idolatry has to first be purged from God's house. Imagine also what kind of priest lived in the day and time where they allowed those idols to stay in the temple. Nobody but the king was going to remove them. In the same spirit, and when we come to church on Sunday, we should be cautious of the mental idols that we have in our own mind. And you might say, I don't worship any idols. I don't worship any false gods. I don't have any statues that I you know, place above the Lord. And that's quite true. But anything we place more emphasis on than the Lord becomes an idol in a certain way. Because when we come to church on Sunday, it shouldn't be about politics. And so often these preachers, uh, when their church starts to reach a certain large number, they enjoy the power that comes with that sort of thing. And they begin to crave the political power that is the only source of power higher than their own. Uh, I graduated from a school called Crown Southwest. It no longer exists, but the school exists in essence and just a form of what it was before I went to school there, and it's called Norris Seminary. Uh, but what had happened was there was a merger between the school that exists now and this, another school called Crown College, which is in Powell, Tennessee. And uh, I enjoyed my time in school, and I enjoyed listening to Pastor Sexton preach. Uh, but there, after a while, he started inviting uh, politicians to come and speak, uh, and not just during special events or that sort of thing, which I wouldn't do anyways, but he started inviting them to speak uh, in lieu of preaching for worship services. Uh, he had men up there that never claimed to be Christians. I think at some point he had President Trump there. And uh, you might be for President Trump, and that's fantastic. You might not be, and that's fantastic too. Uh, the problem with that is not who it was. The problem with that was that is not the place for that. Right? There are political rallies. And if you want to see President Trump, I'm sure you can go see those things. Wear your Make America Great Again hat. Fantastic. Church is not the place for that. It shouldn't be about the government. It shouldn't be about the people. It shouldn't be about the representatives. The church house should be about the Lord. That's no worse, honestly, than some of these preachers who stand up on a Sunday morning and begin to spout off about what's going on in the world today and how it relates to the Bible. That's not what we're here for either. We're here to talk about the Lord. You're here to grow as a Christian. To grow spiritually. We leave the world behind when we come to church. It's about the Lord. It's not about us. Beware of the idol of politics. Also, beware of the idol of money. And that's another thing that 
churches should be wary of. It would be very easy for me to get so focused on trying to raise money that I lost sight of what was really important in the church because we're trying to make it on our own and I would love nothing more than to be able to raise the kind of money we need to buy a piece of land, get a building, and be established. And that is the goal. We are trying to do that. But it's not the most important thing. And money never should be the most important thing, either in the church or in our personal lives. Of course, we need money. You know, we have to pay our rent. We have to buy food. Money and work is a way of life. The Bible says in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, uh, By the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the dust of the earth. A man is meant to work. It's what the Bible tells us. But the money that we earn from that job is not the most important thing in the world. The most important thing ought to be the Lord. Because when we run out of money, when we don't know what to do, we can go to the Lord and He'll take care of us every time. I'll give you an example of that that happened for me just this week. Uh, Amanda was supposed to have lunch with Jacob in school this week. So she was on her way to go pick up some uh, chicken eat, chicken express, and she was going to meet him at the cafeteria and have some chicken express with him at lunch. Uh, except on her way, that <coughs> she stopped off at the store first, and on her way back, she, uh, she called me, and she told me that the car was rattling really badly, and uh, that there was a funny smell in the car, almost like something burning, and that the check engine light came on all at the same time. So I'm like, don't even stop anywhere, come straight home. So she came straight home, we opened the hood up, and I could smell it really bad. And there was all kinds of, you know, stuff wrong with it, obviously. We checked the oil, and it smelled like gasoline. And we are like, okay, something's really wrong with the car. And, uh, you know, I, I could see that there was some spilling that, that had happened. And uh, I thought, car shot. It's done. It's either going to be so expensive to get fixed that I'm not going to be able to afford it. Or is they're not going to be able to fix it. I have to get a new car, and I don't know how I'm going to do that right now. So I prayed to the Lord. I said, "Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't know what to do. I, I've only got so many options here. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what I'm going to do about this." So Amanda got home, and we did some car swapping with some family that was very generous in helping us out. And uh, she went and picked up Jacob because we had no way to pick him up later. And uh, got back and we dropped the car off at, uh, at uh, the, the, the man we had that works on our car. And uh, later that evening, Amanda heard back from him and he said uh, that he told us what the problem was. Uh, something to do with the spark plug wires weren't put on properly and they started to burn up in there. Uh, but he said no charge. He said, no charge. And that was the Lord taking care of us there. We even tried to pay him some. We, we brought some money to him and we're like, you worked on it. You, you've earned this. Please take some money. He wouldn't take it. That's the Lord working through the generosity of a good man there. When you don't know what to do, God will take care of you. It's not about the money. It should be about the Lord. But also, and this is one that goes a little deeper, because it's not even about us, right? Because sometimes 
we have a tendency to come to church in a first-person narrative. Now, I, don't, I know there's very few people in this room right now that play video games. I don't know how many people across the camera play video games. But in a lot of the games I play, you can play in what's called first-person or third-person perspective. Right? And what that means is, yeah, first-person is you can't see your character. Right? You are the character, so you're just walking along, and it looks like what you look like when you walk like normal. Or you can push down on a button, and it'll like the camera will zoom out, and you can see kind of see your character walking along as you control it, and you can choose between the two. Right? So you kind of can see things from a third-person perspective and kind of understand a little better about what's going on around you instead of just being focused on what's going on with your character. That's the way it is for us with life. We all live, obviously, in a first-person perspective. Right? But that has a tendency to make us a little blind about what's going on with the world around us. When we come to church, we should do our best to have a mental third-person perspective. Right? Come out of what's going on with just you and see the world around you. See the person sitting next to you and they seem a little bothered about something. Maybe I should pray for them, you know. Uh, see somebody else hurting or in need and the church is raising some money to try to help them out. And, and it, when you're not so focused on yourself and you're trying to help somebody else and you're thinking about somebody else, it honestly helps you uh, with whatever it is you're going through. So we can become our own idol in a certain way. Uh, you ever heard of the, uh, the Greek god Narcissus? Might have not have been a god, it might have just been a person, but in Greek mythology, Narcissus was a person who uh, saw his reflection and uh, fell in love with himself. And that's where that whole etymology comes from, is the man Narcissus who fell in love with himself in Greek mythology. And uh, we, gotta, we gotta be careful about, I'm sure nobody here has fallen in love with themselves, but we ought to be careful about thinking too much about us and not other people or even the Lord. So before anything else can be purged of sin to grow closer to the Lord, the temple must first be purged. Right? And then it says in verse 5, He put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem. Them also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the planets and to all the hosts of heaven. So we see not just burning the temple, but also the, the purging of the temple, but also the purging of priests. Often we read, uh, when we read about a king or a judge removing sin or idolatry from Israel, we relate that in our minds to how we wish America would do the same. And you've heard that countless times, I'm sure. And it would be wonderful if our nation decided to rally behind God and His Word once again. That'd be a fantastic thing. That's something I pray for often. However... The parallel that's given to us in Scripture is not nation to nation. And let me explain why. God loved Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. He started with Abraham, right? And from there grew a nation. From Abraham to Moses, went from a family to a nation. And he loved that nation because he loved its patriarch, Abraham. 
That's the difference. This nation was started as a pursuit, mostly, as a pursuit of religious freedom. There were some pilgrims that were Puritans that came over here looking to worship God in the way they thought best. That was the start of our nation. It's a good start to start with the Lord. However, we are not God's chosen people. America has not replaced Israel. And while we are, for the most part, I believe in my heart, still a nation of Christians, America is not held in the same regard by God as Israel. Parallel doesn't fit there. It does, however, fit in a different way. From Israel to the church. Right? We can't necessarily parallel nation to nation, but we can make that parallel from the children of Israel to the people of the church in the New Testament age. We will never remove sin from the world. But we can remove sin from within our church family and from within ourselves as individual Christians. We can eliminate these things. It says in Romans chapter 9 and verse 30, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. We're, of course, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and how the Gentiles, that's us, the world is broken up into two portions, Jews and Gentiles. And if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. We Gentiles have obtained righteousness by faith. The Jews in Israel still to this day seek to obtain righteousness by the works of the law. And their Romans teaching us that is the difference because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, the Bible teaches us. You can only be saved by grace through faith. And if the priests needed to be purged, they needed to have their sinful nature removed. I mean, obviously, because they were so absorbed in the culture and what was going on in the day rather than the Lord. But they allowed all these idols in the temple. They allowed the temple to rot and decay and need repair. So there was some purging of priests that was needed, but also the purging, there was a completely different kind of priest. In verse 5, it talked about they had priests that were specifically for their idols. These weren't priests that were like working in the temple. These were the kind of priests that were there during the time of Ahab and his wife Jezebel and the prophets to Baal that they had. They had their own priests for their idols. 
And Josiah went through and purged them and uh, destroyed them. And then we see verse 6. As the purging of idolatry continues, it says, And he brought out the grove of the house of the Lord without Jerusalem under the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and stamped it small to powder and cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. And he brake down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the grove. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba and break down the high places of the gates that were in the entering of the gate of Joshua the governor of the city, which were on a man's left hand at the gate of the city. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places came not up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they did eat of the unleavened bread among their brethren. So we see also the purging of the people. The people of Israel, or the people of Judah rather, needed to be purged. It had been so long since anybody had read the Word of God or knew of the one true God or His Word, that they were as familiar with Him and His Word as they were with these other idols, Baal, Nashtaroth, and so forth. They knew as much about their heritage of the Lord as they did anything else that was worshipped in their day. So the people needed a purging. The children of the people though that we saw, I think it was in verse 6. The children of the people there at the end of verse 6 where it talks about how they cast the powder, they, they burned up the, the grove, and they stomped it in the powder, and they sprinkled that powder over the graves of the children of the people. The children of the people there is in reference to those that had sacrificed unto these false gods. And uh, that is reaffirmed for us in 2 Chronicles 34.4. We also see that it referred to in verse 8. No, I'm sorry, verse 7. About Sodomites. It said, he break down the houses of the Sodomites. Uh, Sodomites refers to those that commit sodomy, obviously. Or the sin that Sodom was famous for way back in Genesis, which was homosexuality. However, sodomy carries with it, the word at least, carries with it a violent nature. Right? It's not just the sin of homosexuality, it's also sort of violent tendencies that come with it. Because if you remember the story in Genesis, uh, the angels came and angels sort of have a, a masculine nature to them, at least these angels did. And the men came to Lot's house after they saw the angels go in and they ordered Lot to send the angels back out so that the men of the city could rape the angels. That's why they call it Sodom. 
they didn't realize how easily they could die, uh, evidently. But uh, that is when even more atrocities were done by Lot that we can't get into this morning. But that is why it's referred to as sodomy, is because they were guilty of the sin of homosexuality. And specifically, that which we know about in Scripture had an extremely violent nature to it. Uh, however, I don't know that that's the case here in 2 Kings 23. I can't say for certain that these sodomites it refers to had a violent nature to them. Because we don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Uh, this form of homosexuality, though, was also a part of the idolatrous ritual that was uh, part of making the hangings that were being made for the different gods being worshipped at the groves. Because oftentimes, remember how I talked about they would carve the symbols of those gods or the names of those gods into the trees of that grove. But what they would also do is they would create decorative hangings for the trees. And sometimes they would have on them the names or symbols for those gods. But more times than not, it would just be decorations that fit thematically with whichever god they were worshipping. And so evidently, according to scripture, it was at these uh, houses of sodomy that these ornamental hangings were being made for the groves of these false idols. So you can see how bad it's gotten in Israel. This is not the loving people of God that followed Joshua across the Jordan River. Right? These are not the trusting people that followed the judges of uh, old into the will of the Lord. These are not even the same people that David led wholeheartedly unto the Lord. Israel has changed. Even Judah, who was supposed to be nearer unto the Lord than Israel. They've changed in a bad way. So it was not only the sin listed in Leviticus 18.22, which tells us that homosexuality is in fact a sin. But it was also idol worship, which is the breaking of the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Josiah also, I believe we read this, I oh, know, I'm sorry, we haven't read that yet. In verse 10, we see the beginning of the purging of the land. In verse 10 it says, And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fires of Molech. And he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun, S-U-N, sun, at the entering in of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Malek, the chamberlain, which was in the suburbs, and burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars that were on top of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, did the king beat down and break them down from thence and cast the dust of them 
into the brook Kidron. And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on top, or I'm sorry, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had builded for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. And he broke in pieces the images, and cut down the groves, and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, uh, who made Israel to sin, had made, both the altar and the high place he broke down, and burned the high place, and stamped it small to powder, and burned the grove. The purging of the land. Josiah just fixed a lot of wrongs that had been wrong in Israel for a very long time. Josiah finally firstly removed the sinful practice of burning babies alive in the name of Molech. We just talked about that last week, or the, maybe two weeks ago, with uh, Josiah's grandfather, who committed such atrocities to Molech. And now we see Josiah has permanently removed any possibility of the future being able to perform those heinous acts because he's destroyed the altars of Molech. There is no more any altar for the children to pass through the fire. He's destroyed this horrid abomination. We also see that Josiah removed a grove that dates back all the way to the time of King Solomon. And we know this because the Bible tells us that it was King Solomon himself that made this grove, that planted it and established it for three specific different gods. And for all the, the kings that did right in the sight of the Lord that came after Solomon, none of them saw fit to destroy this grove. Nobody had destroyed it. They left it there because it was Solomon's grove because of how powerful and wealthy and wise this king of old was. And evidently it seemed to them to be a disgrace to the memory of Solomon to tear this grove down. So it has survived all this time until we come to Josiah. And Josiah saw fit to do rightly and remove King Solomon's grove. It was spared because it was so beautiful and because it was made by King Solomon. However, just because something is beautiful or just because something is fun or just because something is, makes you happy doesn't mean that it's good. And it doesn't mean that it's right. So the question becomes to us, what groves are we keeping in our own lives that separate us from the Lord? because it's beautiful, or because the thing brings us joy. Amen. And then we see Jeroboam's altar was destroyed. This altar has been in existence since Israel first split between Israel and, and Judah. And this altar that Jeroboam created was the golden calf. You remember that, he was afraid people were gonna leave his country to go to Judah to worship. 
And so he created the golden calf so that they could worship that here instead of worshiping the one true God where he ought to be worshipped, which was Jerusalem. And to this moment in 2 Kings 23, though that final golden calf was still up and being worshipped until Josiah came along. This altar of the golden calf and its remain. Uh, uh, this is was. I'm sorry. This was the altar of the golden calf, and it remained because it helped the king to rule the people in a very political way. So even when the Bible says there was a king, king came along that did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Still, that king didn't remove the golden calf, probably because it did help him politically. It helped him rule the people, control where they were going and where they weren't. The golden calf, however, represents a dark part of Israel's past and how they never truly learned either from it or how to move past it. So the question then becomes like the, the grove of Solomon, what golden calves of our past are we still holding on to? What golden calf do we, we run back to every so often stumbling in our faith to the Lord? What horrible tragedy or terrible mistake do we keep going back to that stumbles us up from the Lord, that makes us feel as though I can never be close to the Lord like I was again because of what I did in my past? Remember, golden calves can be removed and destroyed. And all sin for the Christian that has accepted Christ as their Lord and personal Savior is under the blood and is completely forgiven. And we see, secondly, is the pull to righteousness. In verse 21. Make sure I'm reading this correctly. I'm sorry, let's, uh, let's read in verse 16 real quick, just to catch you up with what's been going on. Uh, it says, And Josiah turned himself, and as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchers that were in the mount, and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchers and burned them upon the altar and polluted it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Then he said, What title is that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the sepulcher of the man of God, which came from Judah and proclaimed these things that thou hast done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him alone. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet that came out of Samaria. And all the house, also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the king of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger, Josiah took away and did to them according to all the acts that he had done in Bethel. And he slew all the priests of the high places that were upon the altars and burned men's bones upon them and returned to Jerusalem. Which brings us to our second point now, the pull to righteousness. So it's not just about purging things anymore. Now it's not just about removing things. Now it's about adding things. Because it's not just enough to remove things from your life, right? That's what a lot of preachers focus on, isn't it? You hear somebody preaching and they're listing one sin after another after another. Get rid of this and get rid of that and don't do this and don't do that. That's why a lot of people feel like church and the Bible is nothing but a list of rules and things you're not supposed to do. 
But there's so much more to God's word than things we're not supposed to do. You know, it's a it's a journey, it's an adventure, and it's experience some of the greatest stories in the Bible, or some of the greatest stories in the world are here in the Bible. Even people who don't believe in the Bible have heard of David and Goliath. You know, that's a that's a phrase, it's an idiom. You know, old David and Goliath story over there. They may not have ever read that themselves, but they know what it means. So we move on from purging to pulling, the pull to righteousness. Verse 21 says, And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely, there was not holden such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, wherein this Passover was holden to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem did Josiah put away that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses. Neither after him arose there any like him. Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house which I said, my name shall be there. Since the days of Joshua, Israel has not kept the Passover in all these years. I've done the study. I've done the research. You will not see a mention of the word Passover from Joshua 5 to 2 Kings 23, where we are this morning. Not one mention of the word Passover. None of the judges ordered to have it kept. None of them. Nor David himself. Nor Solomon, nor any other king in all of Israel's history. The Passover represents looking back but in this instance, on all that God has done for you, for you and for yours. And like Israel, we too have a tendency to forget to look back every once in a while on all the Lord has done for us. It'll help you. It will. Because when you come to those moments that you're a little nervous, a little worried, a little terrified, you can look back at something God did for you before, and you can say, man, if he took care of that, he can take care of this. It'll strengthen your faith. Verse 24 refers to workers with familiar spirits, wizards, images, idols, and other abominations 
speaks of Josiah's life work. This verse tells us that which was the central crux of the work of his whole life as king. This is what he was striving to do. Restore worship, true worship, the true feasts like the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and so forth. And to continue to drive out things like familiar spirits and wizards and so forth. He made it his personal goal in life to drive out as much of Satan's influence out of his land as he possibly could. We too should try to learn what things allows the devil to whisper in our ears and then remove them. On a side note, by the way, because he did have the word wizard here, and I wanted to talk on this for a while because I studied this this week and I found out some more information. It's very interesting to me. Most of the images based on, uh, or most of the images that we have during the Halloween time about witches and uh, broomsticks and the witch's hat, all that kind of thing. Uh, most of the images of witches we have in our day and age come is based on modern day witches are called Wiccans. Probably many of you already knew that. What you might not know is Wiccans do not worship Satan. They don't worship the devil. They worship, uh, basically they worship nature. It's a little more complicated than that, but that is basically what they do. Uh, that, not that that's better. It's not. It's just as bad, if anything. Uh, Satanism itself, however, and worshiping of the devil wasn't invented until the 1700s. And the history of riding brooms doesn't come from witches. It comes from a pagan ritual farmers used to do in the, the full moon under the light of the full moon uh, so that that particular god, which was a, a god of crops and fertility, that pagan god would bless their crops for the year. And so that's where it comes from. It doesn't even come from witches. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding when the Bible refers to a witch or a wizard or a sorcerer, it's not talking about those guys you see on the cartoons. It's not talking about, what is the, the witch's name? Hazel from Bugs Bunny? The one that's always chasing Bugs Bunny around trying to get him in the Halloween episodes. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about a witch. Right? It's not talking about some some old green-faced lady, you know, standing around a cauldron going bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. That's not the kind of witch that the Bible talks about. The when the Bible says the word witch, wizard. Lost my place here. Uh, witch, wizard, or sorcerer. It means somebody that has chosen, has allowed themselves by choice to be possessed by a demon because the deal was that when that demon possesses them, it's going to give them supernatural abilities. The supernatural abilities can only be given if the demon possesses you by choice. So that is the choice they're making. So when it says he's driving out wizards, that's what he means. They're driving out these people that have allowed themselves to have demonic power, right? which is different than when he talks about a familiar spirit. A familiar spirit is a spirit that comes, comes over somebody, uh, still by choice, but this is the kind of spirit that allows them to communicate with the dead. They say, but Matthew, isn't that kind of false? Most of the time, it's just people trying to pull a rabbit out of their hat, right? trying to trick somebody into thinking they're talking to the dead relatives. 
There was evidently at some point in scripture and time, possibly even on rare occasion today, where that was real. Does anybody remember the story where Saul went to the witch at Endor? He went to the witch at Endor to speak to Samuel because Samuel had died. He didn't know what to do anymore. And Samuel showed up and scolded him for using a witch to talk to him. So at some point that was true. The devil has power in this world. Don't think he doesn't. He has an incredible power and an incredible might. There was a reason that uh, Pharaoh's sorcerers were able to turn their rods into snakes as well. Only difference is Moses' rod ate all the other rods. So the devil has a power similar to that which God gives us, but God is mighty. So just so you know, so all these times people are like, oh, I don't watch Harry Potter. It's wizardry and witchcraft and Satan worship. It's not. Completely different thing. That's the kind of witch or wizard that the Bible's referring to. Since we're coming up on Halloween, the word popped up. I thought it'd be a good moment to explain all that. Uh, nearly done, though. But it also said, this was extremely interesting. Never in all of Israel's history was there a king that was as righteous and as good as King Josiah. Never. He did things even David never did. Also, he was faithful to his wife, as far as we know. You know, he never had somebody killed to steal their wife. So why is it, I suppose, that we all know so well the story of David, but most people have never even heard of Josiah? That's because people are not as interested in righteousness as they are in a good story. Because doing the right thing is boring. I'm not going to lie to you this morning. It, it is. Right? But the fun that comes with doing the wrong thing comes with a much longer lasting pain you will regret. The Bible says that the pleasures of sin are but for a season. The pain that comes afterwards can last the rest of your lifetime. I heard somebody say one time, and I thought this was very intelligent for them to say, they said, if you want to do something evil, or if they want to do something evil, they hide it in something boring. Right? Because we don't have the attention span for that. We're just going to, yeah, sure, accept all the terms and services. Anybody ever read the terms and services? I don't think so. That's the way they do it. They hide it in something boring. And doing the right thing can sometimes be very boring. Let me tell you something. You choose to get bored and move away from the Lord, you will regret it. You'll look up at the end of your life like Solomon said. Solomon, who turned from the Lord, got bored, acquired all this wealth, all this power, all these amazing things at the end of his life. He said, vanity of vanities. All. All is vanity. Because when you acquire all these things outside of God's will, they lose purpose. You've heard of rich people getting bored and doing something crazy like that? You know why that is? That's because when you have everything you could ever possibly hope for, but you don't have Jesus... Nothing holds any purpose or meaning or value. What's the purpose of money? What's the purpose of power? What's the purpose of wealth or prestige? What does it all matter? Once I've got it, it's all boring to me now. Worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ gives your life meaning and purpose. And then we see a couple more verses, the end of our lesson this morning, the perishing 
of Israel's last righteous king. In verse 28, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the king of Judah, kings of Judah, in the days of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up against the king of Assyria uh, to the river Euphrates, and king Josiah went against him, and he slew him at Megiddo when he had seen him. And his servants carried him in a chariot dead from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own sepulcher. We see that he slew him at Megiddo. The name Megiddo means the place of crowns. And it's significant that Israel's greatest and most righteous historical king was utterly defeated in the valley of Megiddo. Because it will be the place where Israel's future king, the Lord Jesus Christ, will defeat every other nation in the world. The Antichrist and Satan to become the one true king of all the earth. You ever heard of Armageddon? You know what the name Armageddon means? It means in the valley of Megiddo. That's what Armageddon means. That is where Jesus will return in the second coming, not in the rapture, in the second coming, because in the rapture he won't actually touch down on earth. We will meet him in the air and go to heaven without ever having to die. Then beyond that, and we're going to go into more detail about all these things when we get into eschatology or the doctrine of last things. But then he'll return with all of us behind him on his horse. He will land and meet the army of earth. will have united under one banner. And he will meet that wicked army and by himself slay the entire army. And he will have victory over all of the defying people of earth, over the Antichrist and Satan, there in the Valley of Megiddo. It will be the world's final battle. What a day that'll be. So it's ironic that Josiah, Israel's last decent king, died in that same valley. But he died a good man, he died a righteous king, and he died the best king Israel had ever seen. It's not about how you start, folks. It's about how you finish. Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. Well, that'll be our lesson for this morning. We will be back at 1115.